0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code Podcast Thirty for two weeks free and thirty percent off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, Joining me for the hour is Jack Schwager, who I'm sure many of you have probably read uh, his phenomenal interviews, the series uh, of Market Wizards uh, that he put out over the last several years. Jack, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in interested markets? And how in the world did you even get started putting these books together?
2: Okay, well, there's a lot of questions for a first question. I got started in in the industry by accident, actually. I had a master's in, in economics out of Brown, and I was just looking for a job, and I fell into a research analyst job as a as a commodity analyst at the time. This is back in the early 70s. That's how I got in the industry. My first, I i, I got into writing actually through my job. I also, there was originally a commodities magazine, which is going through different ownerships and names, but I was writing for them initially. And that was my first, uh, first publication of any sort outside of writing for the firm. In my first book, I took a sabbatical after I'd been a director of research for about a, a dozen years. I took sabbatical because I didn't think there was a good analytical book on the markets, uh, on the futures markets. I wrote a book called A Complete Guide to the Futures Markets. That was in 84, which was about a dozen years, I say, after I started in the business. And that led five years later to by my, my writing the first of the Market Wizards books. And that came about because being industry, actually my first job, the the position I took, uh, the very first position I took as an analyst, I was replacing a fellow called Michael Marcus, who would be unknown to the world were it not for Market Wizards. He's a very private individual, but he was my first chapter in the first Market Wizards book. So I met him actually by by chance. And through him, he uh when he became a professional trader managing money for commodities corp, he was the one who hired Bruce Covner. And so I knew Bruce through Michael. And you know, those connections also led to other connections. And that basically led to my first market wizard's book. So in short, an answer to multiple questions.
1: So I shared at the uh, the top of the Twitter space. I'm smiling as I looked it up uh the the Marker Wizards book and on Amazon it says, you know, when you did a purchase. So I myself bought that book October 18 of two thousand and three. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I was still in college, right? And I, I and I still have it actually on my on my bookshelf and I've read the subsequent books since. Uh, I, I'm curious back then it must have been harder, I can imagine, uh to try to reach out to these in quotes legendary traders and investors, you know, and basically pitch them on the idea of I want you to to be in this book that I'm putting together. What was that process like back then? I mean, nowadays you can find anybody from LinkedIn or from any of these other social network sites, but back then it wasn't as easy.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, no, yeah, we didn't have internet (laughs) back then was just early days of PCs. So yeah. uh, Well, like I said, I knew Michael personally and I also worked through him for a year as a, as a research for him, a researcher for him, uh, remotely, uh, for commodity so I knew people there, but like I say, so he and Covner came directly through that. Uh, I, it, I forget how I. Some other people I knew just through word of mouth, like Paul Tudor Jones, who at that time, I mean, this was uh, he had formed his firm, but he'd only been business a trader for about five years, so he wasn't as famous as you know, he was nowhere near as famous as he is now. Some other people I don't even remember, like people like Mike Mike uh, Marty Schwartz. I think again. I found through word of mouth. I'm not sure how I found him. So somebody, you know, a lot of it was really networking through word of mouth or personal acquaintances. Uh, as, as I said, there, there was there was no internet to research this stuff on.
1: Let's talk about um, some of the similarities and differences among the different traders that you've interviewed. It's my sense that a lot of the sort of real great traders over time tend to. You know, kind of have mediocre returns for a good amount of time, and then have a couple of fat pitches where they really kind of have you know outsized returns that make up years of of maybe relative weakness. Um, am I off on that idea that the great traders tend to have lumpy performance?
2: No, not necessarily. So, if, yes and no. I mean, some cases yes, some cases no. If the performance, if the returns are very lumpy, I wouldn't end up not interviewing because I'm looking basically. Even for the great story, where somebody turns you know uh, a small a small amount of money into tens or hundreds of millions millions of dollars, or I'm looking for somebody who has just a, a long track record of great return to risk, which by definition is the uh, is the anthem of of lumpy returns. So, um, but you do, but there are people certainly in the books which have. Which have had that type of experience, especially if you count the early years that so you mentioned about getting, you know, uh, getting off to a poor start or whatever. That that is actually that was true of quite a number of traders. Or if, if they didn't get off to a poor start, they had episodes where they had one or in some cases multiple really bad trades, which did a lot of damage. So that is that part's not unusual. But for the most part, the returns, at least at the point where I interview them, tend to, because who knows what happens in the future. Sometimes they continue, but often it's impossible to continue with returns as as uh, consistent and as enormous as when I interviewed them, because you, have, you do have regression to the mean coming in. So if you take somebody like, uh, I'll take Bruce Governor as an example. I interviewed him. He had been trading for about 10 years at that time. And his average return, I still remember, I might not remember exactly, I think it was something like 88% a year. Now, you know, as good as he is, he's not, I know he's not going to continue doing 88% a year. I mean, just can't be done forever. But he still continued to do quite, you know, very well. I mean, Caxton went on to be a very uh, successful firm and managed tens of billions of dollars. So yeah, (laughs) anyway, so it's kind of varied. It's varied. But for the most part, the, you know, certainly when I'm interviewing, their returns are are anything but lumpy.
1: Would you say that the, the there's a consistency in terms of, let's call it quirkiness, among some of these uh, personalities? I, I remember um, – I forget who it was, but I, I'm pretty sure if my memory serves you right. There was someone that you had interviewed who made it a point that he either uh, is in a room with no windows, so there's no outside stimulus and trades in his underwear – right or something along those lines or trades someone naked because he doesn't want to sort of have the uh, effect of anything throwing him off with the trading day are there elements of personality that make the greats from your perspective um just odd for like the way you're saying it
2: i mean a lot of them you you might you know, might consider odd uh quirky they they certainly tend to be obsessive which is one type of odd and and you know some of them are very reclusive and shy i don't know if that's odd or not i don't know how much odder they are than than a cross section of people you know so but you do get you do get characters that that are that are you know you might describe as odd it's not unusual i I, I think part of it also may be there's some in some ways uh, I consider a lot of the people I interviewed to have a certain genius. When it comes to trading, you know, I mean, in some cases, they're geniuses, period. I mean, so, uh, I think somebody like a Thorpe is just a genius, you know, mathematically, he's a genius in trading, just a genius overall. So there are certainly those type of people, people like that. So there are certain people who, uh, who I interviewed who would be geniuses under the category. But, you know, I think a, a much broader number of people are particularly are geniuses, not so much in a general level, but have a genius for the markets and trading. And when people have an extreme skill or talent in one area, be it trading or music or accounting or math or whatever, you know it, that can go with some, you know, with, with oddness in other in other aspects. So I don't think that part is unusual.
1: What about the idea that um, these, you know, kind of great traders tend to be more contrarian in, in their thinking? So I had Jason Shapiro on one of these Twitter, oh, yeah. you know, very much enjoyed the conversation with him, and he and I actually, I think. Largely think similarly from a macro perspective, but is it fair to say that that it kind of goes back to that fat pitch argument that a lot of these great traders tend to just think differently and are so viscerally independent in their thinking that they don't necessarily get caught up in FOMO?
2: Yes, I mean, you, you have to be different because the majority is going to lose, right? So by definition, if you're going to be successful, let alone very su- successful, you have to be doing something that's different. That that's almost a given. The contrarian aspect is a little little bit is not exactly that. Contrarian is its own particular style, and 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 Jason, you know, is is, is the epitome of that type of trading. He's not the only trader. There are other traders, like one I can think of on the top of my head, Jimmy Ballademus in Hedge Fund Market Wizards was an extreme contrarian. There have been others, but I think that is not that is not a, um, a the, the common denominator across traders. It occurs in some traders. Now, they're all different from the crowd, so to speak, by definition, but to the point of specifically looking to get into markets based upon always going, at the time you're getting in, being against the general wave, that is a particular style of trading that is true for some people, like Shapiro and But but it's not true of the broad range of traders. And in some cases, some of the traders tend to be, you know, are much more, in a way, tra- trying to catch the trend, but catch it earlier and get out before it became too popular. As you've
1: interviewed these different traders over the years and put these books together, what did you yourself take away that you use for your own trading and investing style? I mean, I got to imagine there were things that were almost like aha moments as an interviewer, and there were probably things that you would – even question uh, if you want to push back aggressively around a way of thinking from whoever you're interviewing.
2: Yeah. So, so yeah, so definitely, definitely the influence. I mean, I I would say probably the, the most dominant influence, you get hammered on the head with understanding that risk management is absolutely essential. And uh, so, and in particular to, as the epitome of that and to, to kind of crystallize it, I think of one one thing that Bruce Governor said, which I think of mentally many, many, many times all the time anytime I put on a trade in fact and and bruce's uh Bruce said at one point in the interview, I always know I'm getting out before I get in, and uh that is such that is just terrific advice because it, it defines it lets you define how much you're gonna lose on a particular trade, you know except if the market gaps of course but but generally speaking, it defines your max numbers. And it also allows you to make that decision when you're completely objective, because when you're not in the trade, you can think objectively. Once you're in the trade, you've lost that. You, you're no longer objective by definition. So um, that's one one piece of advice. Anytime I put on a trade, if I put on a trade, I think same time I'm putting in a stop on the trade. When I'm putting in that stop, even explicitly or not, I'm I'm thinking of that you know know where you get out before you get in. So that's something that dictates anything I do. Uh, and I'm I here. I should differentiate I'm talking about trading there may be positions that I may put on just for long term and where that I don't do that for example and a couple of years ago I thought I should have some some long position in gold so I've got some long position in gold and uh, gold mining stocks and I don't have stops that I'm I'm just in it you know so because I think part of my my investment part of it should be in gold so that's not a trade so in that case I don't have a stop But anything that is a trade, at the time I put it in, I have a stop. And uh, so that's one strong influence that came out, you know, my own experience of my own books. Then there are other more kind of once in a while things that occur. Um, uh, Marty Schwartz at one point in her interview said, if the market, if you're ever really worried about a position and the market lets you off the hook easily, don't get out. And um, we can talk more about why that may be true, and that that kind of theme came up very, very in a very dramatic interview, dramatic episode in my an interview with another trader, Bill Lipschitz, but a perfect example of that. But in any case, in my own experience, that actually had one time I was in a position I had shorted. Uh, I was looking to. Uh, I was I was not looking. I was getting short. Uh, the stock, I forget which which index, but I was getting sure, probably the S&P, I'm not sure. I was getting sure one of the indexes uh, as the market rallied to what I thought was going to be the top of a range. And that was about 85% in the position. It was a Friday outcomes or an unemployment report uh, that is like so as negative as it could be for the market. I mean, there was nothing positive about it for the market. And the market, as expected, starts selling off. And I figured, OK, pretty much that's it, you know. And then about midday, it, it stops selling and starts going up. And by the end of the day, it closes near the high. And it's a Friday, so I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm, I'm, "I'm dead in the water in this one." And um, come Sunday night, I'm expecting the market to gap higher. And um, instead, it opens lower. And I swear, I thought of Marty Schwartz's thing: "Don't if the market lets you off hook easily, don't get out." I didn't get out, so you know there are time, there are things like that. So there are other things people have said where I think of it, and it uh, leads to you know it, it it it's an help. How
1: important is having a volatile backdrop to success when it comes to these market wizards? I mean, I got to assume that volatility is what kind of separates the the men and women from the boys and the girls, so to speak.
2: I don't, you know, for some, for some, you know, it's it's. It depends what kind of volatility also. I mean you can have low volatility environments there are, there are differences. So yeah, and think about it, right? So you, for any type of trader, let's say let's say a trend trader, right? a uh, trend trader, you'd think that low volatility would be bad, generally, you know speaking, and higher volatility would be good. But if the high volatility is the market swinging back and forth in a broad range in broad ranges. That type of volatility could be could be you know could decimate trend traders through whipsaw whipsaw entries and exits. On the other hand, uh, whereas volatility, like I say, is normally good for for a trend approach, you could have a mark you could have markets where it's going in a direction but with low volatility. It's not you know so so it's mixed. I I, I don't think you know even for a specific even for a given a specific approach. You can't universalize and say, you know, high volatility is good and low volatility is bad. You need you need enough volatility for the market to move, but it's not just the amount of volatility; as the directionality that's important.
1: So, I'll take a, a little bit of a, a counter um, argument with you, just to play devil's advocate. So, I, I often use hmm. this line on on Twitter that there are no gurus only cycles, right? And a lot of that comes from my own frustration, just from a media perspective, in terms of highlighting some fund manager or some hedge fund giant and they have some great returns. And more often than not, when you actually do the attribution on the returns, it's more because they the cycle kind of came their way with whatever theme that they're investing in, whatever they, they believe in. Am I off on the idea that people often give too much credit to the individual as opposed to the environment they're operating in at a moment in time? Because it just seems to me that the macro cycle determines the likelihood of people confusing Alpha from beta, more than
2: not. Yeah, I agree to a large extent. You know the the old saying is don't 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 confuse genius with a bull market. And so for for certain cases, that's certainly true. And certain in every approach, whatever it is, there are better environments and worse environments. And uh, yeah, so there's a great danger in in reading too much into returns without considering the the environment in which those returns were generated. So, you know, you can get, for example, I mean, lots of examples, but if you take the late 1990s, especially 1999, sort of where we're going up to the, we, you had a situation with big internet bubble and and you had lots of worthless stocks getting getting, going to ridiculous values and you had very good value stocks actually, maybe even going down. And people who had a style like, like Warren buffett for example or or Joel Greenblatt who considers buffett kind of a uh, a guy you know guy, really a guy to, to to the right way of trading uh said Greenblatt somebody who was i was the trader who I interviewed but for those type of traders, you know that poor environment they could have done they not only would they have done much worse than the surrounding people but they would have, could have even had negative returns where everybody's making money so so certainly the environment can can't have a lot to do with it. And on the converse, you can have people doing very well just because the environment is is very favorable. So you had a lot of, let's say, credit-type strategies that would have done very well in the 2000s up to 2008 and then just you know gotten completely creamed in 2008. They were doing well because the market wasn't just pricing in credit risk. And they were taking lots of credit risk and using... They were taking credit risk and leveraging it. And so you look like geniuses. But if you looked at what they were doing, it wasn't anything, any genius that they were doing. It was just you had the market, you know, just favoring people who are willing to take very large credit risk. And the only way they get the really good returns is by leveraging it. So, uh, again, that's an example where it's not the trader who's being a genius. It's just being in the right environment, being lucky and lucky. When the tide goes out, so to speak, uh, using Buffett's analogy, then you could, you know, then you see swimming naked. In this case, the credit traders would have been, you know, would have gotten killed because they were taking extreme credit risk, and the markets finally turned against that. So yes, I think there's a large element of that. But really, good traders do—they will do better in certain. They will do much better in certain environments than others. But they do fine enough to to survive and not lose too much and still stay well in the game uh, for over broad periods of time. So you you see traders like I think of you know, or if it's the last book I interviewed, you know, uh, traders uh, unknown market wizards or prior volumes, you know, a lot of those traders just had fairly you know very long periods of time where they they did well. I mean, you think of somebody like Drucker Miller who traded thirty years and. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he had, maybe he had a losing year here or there. It wouldn't have been very large, but uh, didn't have any massive drawdowns. Managed something like close to 30% a year or over 30 years. So that's kind of, yeah. So he might have had years where he had triple digit returns and years where he was zero, but he, you know, he did well over the broad period.
1: Using your terminology around sort of being a, a genius as a trader, are, are there, did you find any sort of um, commonalities across? asset class and the likelihood of somebody being more of a genius than not you know maybe some, some asset class that is less efficient so these market wizards have a, a better chance of generating real outsized returns or is it asset class agnostic
2: we'll be back after a quick break
1: hello listeners Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the Lead Lag Report Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash live, and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: I I, I don't think asset classes... I mean... Asset class is something that uh, determines you know, what a trader does because every trader, I believe, has has a certain affinity for for asset class, for duration of trade, through type of trading, fundam- whether it's fundamental, technical, or some combination, whatever. But all of those things are ingredients in what type of approach fits for a given trader. But I don't think there's any predetermined. Well, this asset class has more opportunity than that asset class. Or there are certain approaches, though, which, which only lend themselves to certain types of talents. So if you're talking about a quantitative approach, you know, you've, you've got to have quant skills. And uh, uh, so there are certain limitations. But again, that's part of what fits the trader.
1: Just uh, to reset the room for everybody that's here for the remaining minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Jack Schwager. And if you haven't read his phenomenal books, make sure you do. I, I gotta assume there's a, there's always the, the, the one that got away, for for lack of a way of better saying it. Were there any um any traders that you really wanted to interview that just for whatever sure. reason the stars didn't align that you you know just you, you have almost a degree of regret for not being able to?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean I, you know my first Mark Wizards book I was very lucky. I I believe everybody I asked uh, agreed to do it. So but and but in subsequent books I did have refusals some refusals, but the the one that the main one, the one that I always had wanted to do, and I tried multiple times that I never was able to get, was George Soros. And uh, I didn't speak to Soros directly. I never got past his intermediary people, but uh, I never got an agreement from him to do the interview. And he—he he was an interview he, that was an interview that I you know put it at the top of my list of people who I did want to interview. One because he's probably uh, you know. Uh, the greatest or certainly one of the greatest traders of modern times and also because he had a kind of a very interesting life and that when i do interviews i try to get into other aspects of a person besides just the trading and in his case you had everything beginning from uh from escaping from uh holocaust to uh when he you know his later adult years uh leaving his hedge fund business largely it's been i don't know how it was a decade or how long he spent uh Focusing on Eastern Europe and Russia, trying to get those countries to a uh, capitalistic mode of operation and, and democracy. So he had a lot of uh, a lot of things that would have been interesting discussion. Plus, all his his thoughts and philosophies. And uh, so I, I would say he's the main one. I was not able to get. There were certainly others that I wanted to interview who, who I couldn't uh, get. So yeah, so. But but that's that's uh, he's at the top of
1: of the list. Okay, so so uh, I'm sure you've seen the same studies that I've seen that would suggest that at least in the hedge fund space uh, there was a lot more alpha on average pre GFC pre Great Financial Crisis than post, and a lot of the reasons seem to be around zero interest rate policy and and QE kind of you know killing off alpha and making it purely about cheap beta. I know you're probably a little bit biased in answering this question, but do you get a sense that it's maybe harder in this environment to identify really truly great traders because there's less alpha opportunity or is that maybe the very reason why there's going to be more alpha opportunity and more great traders?
2: Yeah, no, actually, well, I had I actually thought that. I wrote up my last book about 3 years ago and just working on it uh, updating it for for the paperback to later this year. Uh, but the, so I interviewed those traders right before right before COVID hit because you know, finished you know at that point, and um, you know at that time it was like twenty twenty. So at that point in time, this is uh, this is now thirty years after I did my my first Market Wizards book, and I I did think when that I would have a harder time finding traders with records anything like in the first Market Wizards book when. You know, the, you know the days of the, you know Marcus and Coveners and Paul Tr- uh, Tudor Jones when their heyday, and because I just thought that those we had such immense moves in those days and and we had more trending markets, and uh, and that I just you know it would be and ah, ah. the big thing, of course, was the extraordinary amount of computerization that has occurred subsequent to that first book. You, you have, I mean, not only we went from an environment where the original traders I interviewed. Were, while the book was not pre, PC, it was only a few years, you know, after that point. But certainly, the point where most of these people are trading was was prior to the computer generation, and we went from that to a world of supercomputers and now, of course, AI. I mean, AI has been around actually for a number of years, but but also quant chops with hundreds of of, of PhDs. Uh, you know, and multiple quant shops of hundreds of PhDs. I think in this world, it's, it's you're just not going to find a type of return or return risk that we had in the first market. this book. And extraordinarily, extraordinary as it may seem, there are traders in, this, in that most recent book that have records that are as good, maybe it may be even the best that I ever encountered. So it may not be easy, but it's seemingly still possible.
1: Right. I think that's that's kind of the the, the the core of the question, right? It's sort of have markets become more efficient. And even that has some nuances, right? Because you can argue that markets are maybe more efficient longer term, but I'll take you the other side, but I'd argue that the short term may be even uh, less efficient just because you don't have barriers to entry. You've got commission-free trading. You've got a lot of novices, gamblers for lack of better way of seeing it, that are just going in and out of stocks and trading emotionally. Presumably that also creates, you know, its own opportunity for the real pros.
2: Yeah, it does. In fact, so, you know, and that's it. So you, I think you hit a p- important point. So you may have a lot more professional traders, which you certainly do, but you also have a lot more amateurs. Way and particularly particularly true during that COVID period where you had all these people you know trading just beginning trading and the reddit crowd and all of that so yeah so I, I believe the participation of of amateurs you know creates opportunities even though there may be a lot more professional traders
1: aside from the um the books jack what else have you been keeping yourself busy with I mean I, I see the fun Seater site and some of the other uh, initiatives that you're doing. But talk to the audience, what, what gets you excited in the industry that you're trying to play?
2: Well, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm at a point in my life, you know, so I'm almost 75 now. So I'm at a point in my life where I'm not thinking in terms of work so much, to, you know, quite frankly. So, I, I've, you know, I write a book every number of years, and but uh, I'm not so much focused on, on the industry, and as you mentioned, the front-seater connection, but that's on a advisory capacity as needed. And other than that, I'm more interested in stuff like going kayaking or something. And so uh, that's, that's the honest answer. <laughs> I'm not so much focused on the on, on the work aspect anymore.
1: But, but presumably, you still find it fun to be involved in, in markets, and I'm sure you've got your own thoughts, right, as far as um, what's happening here year now.
2: Oh, I always have my own thoughts, but I don't think they're worth much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no to be honest I mean I, I always try to tell people hey I write I write about market wizards but I'm not a market wizard and uh and I don't I never pretend to be so uh, I I hopefully am net profitable uh, only because I have enough experience not because I'm a good trader uh, but you know my my opinion on on what's likely to happen or not is I don't think worth more than anybody else's and uh, and in fact a lot of the traders I interviewed will tell you that they're not in the prediction game at all, anyway. They're just trying to assess what the market's going to do here and now, and they have a plan for getting out quickly if they're wrong. And that's that's more what's that's more important than a grand prediction.
1: What are aside from sort of the um, the, the successful traits? Uh, any any thoughts on sort of what made some of these traders go through these periods of inevitable underperformance? Were there any common uh, mistakes that were made during those? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, there is certainly a common mistake. The most common mistake among the traders I interviewed, which are some of the greatest traders, as well as most people, is the same mistake. And that's a failure of of risk management or an absence of risk management in many cases. And uh, if you read the, through the books, you'll see that where these traders experienced their early woes in those cases where they did, uh, it inevitably comes down to a grand failure of of risk management, sometimes having you know everything bet on one trade, you know things of that nature which which of course they would never do at this point in their career, but in the early days they did do, and uh I think amateur traders that's the greatest danger too, is that they don't think about risk management, they have a position they have positions that are too large, they don't have a plan for what to do if they're wrong, they don't realize that. The impossible often happens in markets. They say, well, well, the market can't go below this level. Well, sure it can. And it can go to half of that. And it can go to half of that. And these things happen. And so that is the greatest commonality and weakness uh in terms of failure. If you look on the most failures, somewhere the, the explanation will come down to a failure of risk management in one way or another. Although
1: in fairness and as as frustrating as it's been, it's it's just been fact. I mean that risk management, you can argue, has been outsourced to the Fed, right? I mean, that, that was the whole buy the dip, you know, idea for a long time. Now, you can argue that that's not there anymore. We'll see. But, you yeah, presumably risk management when you're dealing with averages matters less than when dealing with individual stocks.
2: Well, I, I think it. We'll be back after a quick break. Um, risk management works on two levels. I mean, it works on individual positions and it works on your portfolio as a whole. So th- those are two levels of it, both of which are important. So you could you can address risk management. I mean, presumably you can address risk management on a position by position, but still fail on a portfolio level. If let's say your positions are super correlators, things like that. I guess if you deal with it at a portfolio level, there's a limit on much you can do. So, but to get to the really deal fit on a portfolio level, you do also have to go to a position level. I don't know if that answers the question. I do. Was that? Yeah, the, no, I mean, well, yeah. well
1: what I'm really going with that is that. I mean, look, the ultimate risk is risk of ruin, which you know is basically a company going bankrupt and the equity going to zero. Like is oh, happening. Yeah,
2: on any individual, price. so anything can happen in an individual position, which comes down to one piece of advice you'll see repeated multiple times throughout the books is this idea of limiting the risk on any single position because you don't know you just don't know what can happen you know and things and crazy things can happen that are just unpredictable and not any not they may not be your fault you know so the trade may make all the sense and you may have made all the right decisions but something out of the blue happens that just you know wipes out that trade and it's nothing you could have foreseen and you may even have had a stop, and maybe the market, because this happens, the market opens way beyond the stop. So, so that's why you, you 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 don't want to have any position too large, and any single position too large. And also, of course, you want to have a theoretical point at which you'll be out of that position.
1: I wonder if you think in um, ten years, twenty years, there's going to be a whole n- new group of market wizards that have nothing to do with. Stocks and have everything to do with crypto. If that's sort of a, a play that's coming,
2: you're presuming you'll be presuming there'll be a crypto market in 20 years. That um, is
1: true.
2: Correct. Right? <laughs> right. um, there may be a few crypto cryptocurrencies, but I, I you know, personally, I doubt that. the a lot, you know, there's of all these multitude of, of cryptocurrencies out there. I'd be surprised if, if more than a handful are are, are long term survivors. And, and i don't know what the prospect is you know for the handful but uh i, I don't think crypto is going to be uh, an important i i mean i i could be dead wrong i just don't see it as being an important area you know 10 20 years out uh it might be an area but in in scope of world of the world finances and world assets you know, i think it'll it'll be a teeny proportion i don't see it being a a big proportion
1: of the um of the various traders that you've interviewed over the years, have you kept in touch with a lot of them? Have you developed good friendships with them?
2: No, I, I actually haven't. Uh, you know, most cases, in most cases, in almost all cases, it's a matter of just doing the interview, spending time with them, and you know, I and that may, in most cases, that that's it. I, I don't have future contact. In some cases, there may be a contact again in the future for one re- reason or another, but it's sporadic. And uh, there are, you know, there are, very, there are no... Like Michael Marcus, I actually haven't been in touch with Michael Marcus for over a dozen years, So, he but he's somebody I knew from the beginning. But he, he was not a close friend, but he was at least a friend by sort. But when he moved on, I, we didn't see much of each other. Peter Brandt, who's in the most recent book, is that we don't live near each other, so we don't see each other very often. But, but he is a friend. You know, he is a close friend. Those are the exceptions. In, in virtually every case, it's somebody that I just met for – and spend time with for the sake of the interviews and uh and that was it
1: were any of those that were interviewed um unhappy with the interviews or or kind of push back on some of the things that were were transcribed
2: well actually surprisingly well maybe not surprisingly no the answer is no i mean i'm not aware i'm not aware in all the interviews i did and all the books i did i'm not aware of any trader that was dissatisfied. with the outcome actually there is a there's a thing that prevents it from from even getting published. If that's the case, because one of the things I I have done all along is um, and, and let me explain why I do this. I I want people to be as honest as they can be, and so I tell everybody you know before an interview that you'll get a chance to well to you know to to, to review the interview before it's published. I do that not only I do that for several reasons. I do that well first of all just double check my accuracy, okay? But also I do it so they know that they won't be blindsided. And, uh, and then they can talk more openly. Because otherwise, if the interview is done and uh, that's the last that I know of it, then they're censoring themselves constantly. But this way I assure them, look, I'm not gonna print unless I have your approval. Now, there's been a few cases where I didn't get the approval. So yeah, so that can happen. And there's, there may be different reasons for that. It's, it's, it, in, in the cases that it did happen, it didn't happen often. It didn't have to do that they didn't like to do there were other other reasons. But it happens only a few times. And other than that, everybody else had a chance. Oh, oh yeah. Then, then they may have to say, well, no, I, I, you know, they may on some sort of thing say, well, this is not what I meant. I meant this or whatever. And, and we agree on some sort of uh you know, we're a change, and we're both satisfied with. But those, those, in most cases, the those type of edits are minimal or non-existent. And when they are, we just discuss it to, to reach a point of mutual uh, agreement. Uh, so I haven't had the experience of anybody actually being displeased with the interview. A
1: question from a Twitter thread here saying, um, "What was the trader with the lowest turnover?" Turnover is an interesting one to think through uh, in the sense of. You know is there any kind of link between you know high turnover and higher performance or lower turnover and higher performance any any sort of interesting uh, insights there
2: so turnover meaning of course how, how frequently you're trading right right and uh, so i i don't have the full statistics to answer it, but if i had to put place a bet i would say it would be probably somebody like jim rogers who tends to hold positions for a very long time or tends to think in, in multiple years on positions so I think he'd be the type of person who would turn over in, you know, infrequently in terms of major position holdings. Um, that's the one that comes off the top of my head as most likely to have low turnover.
1: But you say for the most part that you know that you need some degree of activity. I mean, presumably the the greats are also very good at changing their mind quickly enough.
2: Yeah, uh, well, that's another. I mean, changing your mind quickly enough is is critical. A lot of traders, a lot of traders do that, and. And instantaneously change you know can change their position totally you know on a dime, yeah, i mean on not, not just not just get out because they think they're wrong, but reverse the position at the same time, now, I can give you examples of that, but that's that's actually uh, a trait of a great trader,
1: right? Although that that, uh, that that is very hard to find on social media platforms, right? Because
2: I've, I've oh yeah,
1: well, I was curious myself. Right? People say, "Well, you're flip flopping," and it's like, "Well, no, that's what you're supposed to do."
2: Yeah, that 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 kills me. People accuse you know usually it's politicians get accused of flip flopping, but uh, which is a crazy thing because you know you have to be an idiot not to flip flop, you know, you know when 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 you should. So uh, I mean, the the famous phrase the the saying that's attributed to Keynes, I don't actually know if he ever said it, but it's, it's a paraphrase. It is yeah. when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? What do you do, sir? So, you know, I mean, I mean that whether he said it or not, that 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 phrase that's attributed to him is actually a great way of putting it. You know, if the facts change, you you got to be an idiot not to change your mind. You know, so this criticism always strikes me as as really dumb. Person who, I mean, of course, it's the reason for the flip flop. You know, if you're changing because you recognize you've been wrong, that's what a strong character should do. If you're flip flopping to please because you think uh, you're trying to get elected, you think that the uh, electorate wants the opposite of what you were saying, and you flip flop because of that, even though you still believe in what's true, well, that's that's where it's a a valid criticism. But that's not the way it's usually applied.
1: The other thing that, that drives me crazy is and I'm sure the you must have seen a lot of this is people always want to trade like this person or that person, trade like Buffett, trade like Thorpe, trade like whatever. And I always I always have a problem with that intellectually because it's like you can never trade like somebody, even if you knew exactly what they knew, your emotional response to markets is unique to you, right? And will cause you to trade in different ways. Where I'm going with that is is it possible to really mimic and and trade like the great, like the millers of the world? Or, or is there something that's just some sort of physiological uh, and unique to them? No, I, I
2: mean, I think you can be, you can learn from all different people and you can pick up elements of different people's style and your style may be similar to them, but it's always by definition going to be different. And it's not, I think it's a mistaken quest to try to copy somebody else's style because what may work for one person if another person tries to copy it, it's not going to work for them because they're just not going to have the same reaction to markets. And not, it, it just, yeah, you know, just like people are different, the approaches that would work for people have to be different. It can't be exactly the same. You know, you're not exactly the same as a person you're trying to copy.
1: I think that's a uh, good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Uh, jack, how do people find you aside from here on Twitter?
2: Oh, uh, just, you know, uh, well, on Twitter, obviously. And and I have a website that I have to admit, I don't really do much, but there's stuff on it, you know, uh, at jack at jackschwanger.com. And, uh, at, you know, at Funseater well, I'm not, there's nothing to post there, but if people are interested in getting analytics on their performance You know they can check that out.
1: Very good, Jack. I appreciate uh, your time here. Thank everybody for
3: joining. Uh, Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.